This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, which hopefully, as you all know, is the preferred stablecoin of digital natives and crypto natives with over 1.5 million holders globally. You'll hear more about USDC later in the show. Uh, all right, everyone. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Empire. I'm going to timestamp this episode just because things are so fluid and moving so quickly. So we're recording this Friday, November 11th. It's 1120 uh, Eastern. Stephen Avichel woke up early on the West Coast for this one. So appreciate it, guys. We've got uh, Avichel, Garg, uh, and Hasib uh, from Dragonfly. Uh, Avichel runs Electric. Um, guys, I, 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 so many places that we could go with this episode and, and this conversation. I think I want to start with... Um, your guys's take on like ft just ftx and alameda and basically like how much of this did you guys know as like large crypto investors how much of this how much of this did you know in terms of like alameda is incredibly ruthless like ftx this exchange obviously you had no idea they were commingling funds no nobody knew that but like how, how how much of it was like knowledge already that alameda was just like this ruthless trading firm maybe Hasib, can i start with you there yeah yeah, I, I think this has been known for a long time among people in the crypto industry. Um, there are some pretty infamous stories. I mean, it, you know, it was, it was well known. It was part of the Sam mythology that he he got his start as a trader. You know, there's a whole story about the Japanese yen uh, arbitrage. You know, everybody, everybody loves this story about how he's such a genius and how he's such a great trader. Um, and Alameda was the Alameda is what came before FTX. And when FTX was originally raising their seed round, the story was that, okay, this trading firm, this very successful trading firm is going to start an exchange. And that was seen as being kind of suspect because generally speaking, like a trading firm and an exchange, um, they, they should not have a relationship, right? Because there's always a worry, you know, traditional exchanges don't have a market making arm or don't have a trading firm associated with them because there's the worry that the trading firm might be... Um, might be advantaged in some way. You know, they might be able to trade on God mode. They might have an unfair advantage on the exchange. Um, and in the very early days of Alameda, a lot of counterparties did not want to trade on FTX because they always worried that, does Alameda have some advantage? Is there something shady going on? Now, when FTX really grew, like in 2021, um, a lot of people were like, okay, no, it's fine at this point, right? They have institutional money. They're growing really big. At this point, it doesn't really make sense that FTX would be doing anything that is untoward with respect to you know, how they're running their order books. And so people were mostly okay with it. But the the presence of Alameda behind FTX was always a bit weird, right? Because although FTX was so was considered to be a very institutional brand, it was really, you know, gaining a lot of popularity and, and retail awareness, um, Alameda was known as being one of the most cutthroat trading firms in crypto, right? Uh, it's kind of an open secret that a lot of the big exchanges have market-making arms, right? The Kraken had a famous market-making arm, of course, uh, Binance is a big market making team. You've never heard of any of them. They don't have names. They don't. They're not public. They don't talk about what they do um, because they're only really there to try to make the exchange more liquid. Um, Alameda was legendary for being absolutely ruthless and mercenary, right? And it was it was very strange. Of course, the relationship even between FTX and Alameda, because back last year before FTX Ventures came into existence, Alameda was doing venture deals for FTX, but not explicitly. And, and, you know, there was this famous story with refinance where Alameda, you know, invested into some, I don't remember what they were, some, some DeFi protocol, um, and they were shorting their token and dumping it and doing all this, you know, market manipulation stuff. Uh, and, um, and this is kind of what they were known for. They were traders. And if you, if you give money to a trading firm, they're going to trade your token. Uh, and and they, were, they, they were making so much money off of farming, 
off of doing these venture deals on these uh, illiquid tokens and um, uh, uh, levering them up, using them as collateral, or just outright dumping them the moment that they were able to. Uh, and that's a lot of how they made their money last year was on the association between Alameda and FTX. So uh, to me, I think most people in the industry knew this. Like last year, we lost deals to Alameda, which to us was like, what? How, how is Alameda winning deals from us? But the answer was because they were, cons they were considered to be the venture arm of FTX until yeah. you know, Sam uh, decided to separate that out and make it FTX Ventures. Well, I, I was just going to say, there's always this question of like, is, is FTX in service of uh, Alameda or Al is Alameda in service of FTX? And I think the way Hasib put it was right, which was, you know, for most of the exchanges, even if you have a market making arm, the market making, you know, the trading arm of it is in service of making the exchange more successful. And I think, you know, what what's slowly coming out here, it appears that with FTX, that was the reverse, right? Like FTX was really propping up Alameda after they experienced some, some very significant losses. Entirely, you know, possibly because Alameda was just making so much more money than FTX. I mean, they were just such a profitable, you know, if you, if you kind of run the exchange numbers, I mean, I, I think people have been talking about this. It's just, it almost didn't make sense how much money they had, you know, just based on their core business. Um, and so that money had to be coming through Alameda, right, through through their through their trading arm. And so in some sense, I'm not saying it was, it was valid, but like you can see how a group of people, if, if you think of these things as two business units, of course, you would try to make the more successful business unit even more successful or try to prevent it from falling over. So you can kind of see how they would have rationalized some some pretty terrible behavior if, if that were actually the case. When you, what does it mean to be a ruthless? When you think about like Alameda, it's like, Hasib, you said they, they, they had this reputation of being like just incredibly ruthless. Like what does that actually mean in practice here? There is this famous story uh, that people have been bringing up lately, I think since 2019, when CZ accused Alameda or, or Sam personally of uh, market manipulation of basically trying to engineer um, a dislocation in the spot markets uh, to basically, you know, kind of cause uh, uh, perps to get knocked over. I don't remember what the, what the coin was, but it was some, you know, some random coin that they were trying to manipulate. Um, I, I don't know if that's true. And it's a bit speculation uh, exactly what happened. Um, there was also this famous story about Neutrino, uh, which was the stable coin on waves that, uh, again, it was accused that Alameda was, uh, which I, I believe was an investor, um, went in and tried to depeg Neutrino in order to make some money. Now, again, all these are speculation. I don't know. We don't know any of the details. And I'm sure now that they are going through bankruptcy, uh, which was just announced this morning that FTX, FTX US and Alameda are all filed for bankruptcy. Um, there's a lot more that we are going to learn about what exactly did they do and, and what, uh, if there were uh, illegal or unethical acts that were committed, um, not just in the progress, not just in the process of the dissolution of FTX, but you know, over the last several years, all of that stuff is going to end up coming out as uh, people go through the tangle of assets that were held uh, by Alameda and by FTX. Um, it's, it's very clear that they had their hands in tons and tons of pots. And, you know, when we, we would occasionally speak to folks who would come out of Alameda, um, who were looking for a job and, you know, they were just like, okay, I, I like did my time at Alameda. Alameda was considered to be a prestigious place to work. Um, but for, as far as we could tell, they didn't pay very well. Um, so, you know, it was, it was kind of the principals at Alameda who were making all the money. And um, it was considered almost everybody who left Alameda and who would tell us about it would tell us that it was an absolute shit show. Um, it was incredibly disorganized. There was very little discipline. Um, and uh, it, was, it was basically run by kids. And of course, it was, they were very good at what they did. 
Um, but it was a very, it, they, they made all their money you know, eventually, especially last year, doing degen stuff. They, they made all their money yield farming. They made all their money, you know, uh, collapsing, uh, uh, collapsing structures that they knew that they could profit from. And uh, if, that's, if that's the name of the game and you're the biggest player out there, there's a lot of stuff you can do that no one else can do or that no one else has the stomach to do. And that was, that was Alameda's MO. Yeah. At least it seems to be that that's the way they made most of their money. Yeah. Do you, Avichal, do you think that FTX and Alameda were in fact actually pretty disconnected? And then what happened here is uh, they got on the wrong side of a big trade or just wrong. Yeah, I guess wrong side of a trade is probably maybe the right way to say it with, with Luna and Terra. And like when, when basically when three arrows and Luna and Terra and all that stuff blew up, they were on the wrong side of that. Sam said, oh, yeah. fuck, uh, let me move some, some customer funds from like, do, do you think that was what kicked this off? Or do you think this goes deeper than that? I, I suspect that's what kicked this whole thing off. The challenge now is, you know, the, the reasonable assumption, like from an ethical perspective, would have been to say that these are these are separate entities. Yes, there's there's some overlap in terms of management or, or founders or whatever, but we treat them separately. You know, no information goes from one to the other. No funds can go from one to the other. The accounts are segregated. You know, we would never touch user funds. Like those are all the things that, you know, if you were to do this, and it's already a little bit, as Athi was saying, it's a little bit dubious that you would run a trading operation and a venture firm and an exchange because it creates it can create misalignments um but suppose you, you you're able to you know organizationally set that up such that there that there are these separations the problem with that is that's what they've claimed but given given what they did it really casts doubt on whether that's that's actually what was happening right like if it were the case that 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 is how they were operating it's it's very, very like given what they did, it's very likely that that is actually not how they were operating, right? Like given this prior that we now have about their behavior and kind of what they did with user funds and how they how they chose to operate here, I think it's entirely likely that actually there there was a lot more connectivity there than they would have led anybody to believe as of three or six or twelve months ago. Yeah, and, and and I don't fault uh, I don't think this is I, on the employees or the or the investors or anything like that. I think it's. You know, it's, it, with with that small an operation, it's entirely possible that it was, you know, five to ten people who were in, fully in the know, and and that was the sort of connectivity between these organizations, and, and that in and of itself may have been extremely improper. I, I, I honestly, I, I personally think that's unlikely. Like, it, it's you can't pass an audit if you're doing this kind of shit, right? Like, the, there's there's absolutely no way that they received almost a billion dollars of capital without audited financials. Like there's just no, way. I don't know. I don't know, man. You cannot get that kind <laughs> I mean, of shit past an auditor. I, yeah, but, but they don't have a board. Yeah, I like, mean, look, I, mean, I think you can take money like, from crypto again, VCs, but like, is, no, I mean, if you're taking is, money from BlackRock, if you're taking money from Tomasek, there is, there's like, no way, this was, this was there's wild. no way this you can like, have audit financials. I think you, I, I, if you go back, they may have had audited. I think I, I remember seeing a tweet that was like audited financials as of 2020, which they produced like or, you know, like earlier this year or something. So they were going back and doing it. So I suspect at the time that they received the funds that the audit oh, had is that not right? completed. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, I don't call me on that, but I, I'm pretty sure I saw that flow by because I think, I don't think they'd completed like last year's audits yet or something. But but I, I think, I mean, what you're getting at to see, I think the macro point is kind of an interesting one, right? Which is in a normal situation, in normal times, if you had a company, you know, ra raising at 20 billion, 30 billion, 40 billion, and raising hundreds of millions of dollars, raising a total, I think they raised a total of $1.7 billion. Um, with those kinds of dollar amounts, mm. you would see a board, you would see a CFO, you would see corporate governance, you would see diligence, you would see audited financials, like you would see all of these things. And 
And it doesn't appear that many of those things were in place, which really, to me, like, like what you're saying sounds very reasonable to me. Like there should be audited financials, but like given where we are and, and given like, you know, the lack of a board and lack of oversight and lack of governance and all these things, it makes me wonder, like, it's entirely possible that people gave them $1.7 billion with like no audited financials. I, I, I agree. I think it is possible. I, I think on a broader level, it does seem to me unlikely. Like, so one thing that's clear, right, is that Alameda owned a huge amount of FTT. Yep. And they also owned a huge amount of the Solana ecosystem assets, right? So there was clearly connectivity, not necessarily in terms of, okay, FTX was sending money to Alameda, but there was clearly a situation in which Alameda was benefiting from their position in Correct. knowing that FTX is growing and FTX is going to make certain assets more valuable. And FTX is going to ensure that the assets on the balance sheet of Alameda are going to be valuable, namely FTT, which became their collateral that they were holding with all these different lenders. Um, and so honestly, I don't think they needed to do anything, right? I don't think they needed to yeah. go into customer funds. I don't think they needed anything because totally, totally, Alameda yeah, yeah. killed it to, last year. Yeah, to be, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that they were, that they were using user funds prior but even that information sharing is extremely improper, right? To your earlier point, right? Like if you're trading against your clients, if you're shorting the tokens of yeah. the of the companies that you've invested in, like all that that sort of stuff would not even show up. Even if you grant that there might have been an audit, that may just never show up on an audit. And that sort of behavior, I think you would you know it would be done between yeah. five to ten yeah, people, sure. and they could get away with it for a long time. Here, here's uh, I brought this up of each to Hasib before we we started recording here, but one of my uh, like some something doesn't feel like it's adding up with the money and it seems like no they were mm. just printing cash here but like you know sam invested 500 million dollars into sequoia he was buying you know he bought what 200 300 400 million dollars of property in the bahamas uh he was they were using cash to buy some of these lenders like that is a just a an absurd amount of money right like that is a remarkable yeah. amount of capital was you think of alameda was just printing this much money and is that is that possible? That that's my guess. That I, I mean, we'll see. Um, it's you know, but who knows, right? Like, I, and I don't want to speculate, but given given the outright uh, fraud and appropriation of customer funds and and you know lying that's happened, you know, anything's possible. But my my understanding along the way was it was just that Alameda was printing so much money for for one to two years there. And to Steve's earlier point that if the principals were the ones taking it all, you know, could could you imagine them pulling a couple hundred million out? Um, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem crazy to me, given given the volumes that they were doing. Well, to be clear, it's also likely that um, there were some common that was sold in some of these rounds just because they had the leverage. I mean, there's so many people wanted FTX equity that there's a good chance that he sold some of his equity. There's also a good chance that he just borrowed against it. I mean, Sam was yeah. again, Sam was considered to be this unassailable golden child of the industry also really I think it would be trivial for him to borrow against his ftx equity yeah, yeah. i think that, that's a good call out too it's entirely possible that's what he did why would companies take venture investments from alameda or or even from ftx ventures like if they if i if i was a founder and i was in if i was building a protocol and i knew i was gonna have a token as well and you're like okay here you can go take money from like electric and dragonfly and all these amazing vc funds that are really going to help me out or I can go, go take venture money from like this ruthless market maker that's going to like pick me off uh, at the first sight of weakness. Like, why is it because then they could get liquid on an, on a, on a big exchange and like you've got this brand name behind you? Is that is that? Yeah, really I all think there are two. Yeah, I think there are two. Well, you remember yeah. last year? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I I, I think um, there ahead, are two Richard. reasons. One is uh, I think the 
association with FTX, the hope was that 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 would get you at the very least some sort of relationship, you know, and, and, and exchange listings and liquidity are, are, you know, a thing that, that people care about. Um, and I think this was more common internationally, less, less so in the U S because the FTX U S you know, FTX international sort of, of, of bifurcation. The other is there are many protocols that do need market makers and they do need liquidity. Um, and so from that perspective, having somebody who really understands that stuff on your cap table that you can talk to or having them involved, um, you know, to potentially offer those kinds of services in your ecosystem, I think can, can make sense from a founder's perspective. Um, and so I think there were, there were, there were definitely reasonable rationalizations. And then it's really a question of like, how do you size that? You know, if you're letting them in for 250 K or 500K or something like that, you know, that, that to me is not crazy from a founder perspective, if you want that sort of perspective on your cap table. But by the way, this happens with other trading firms too. Yeah, I think exchanges. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I think it's uh, a lot of it was an artifact of what it looked like, what it felt like last year. That FTX was this rising star. People believed at that time that FTX was going to overtake Binance. They were growing market share like crazy. Everything that listed on FTX went up. Sam would just, you know, he was the man of the year. Um, everything that he touched turned into gold. And so if you could get Sam on your side, if you could enter into this, this, the, the zeitgeist of Sam coins, um, then it was, it was up only for you. And uh, Alameda, of course, was, was basically profiting on this ambiguity of their relationship to FTX. And then eventually, I think really what happened was that after Alameda sullied their reputation with all of these predatory stuff that they were doing, um, Sam basically said, okay, you know what? Let's stop doing the venture deals through Alameda. And let's now start doing the venture deals through FTX. The same team, same team moved over. You know, it was the same guys who were doing all these venture deals. Um, they added a couple more people after they became FTX Ventures, um, but they just changed the name, and now it's FTX Ventures. And now FTX Ventures is we're friendly. We're you know we're not traders, so it's totally okay. Um, and FTX Ventures kind of dropped the Alameda brand as it started to look worse, and garnered this brand new brand, even though it was the exact same people and the exact same relationship with FTX. Um, and I thought it was I thought it was a brilliant move. Um, but, you know, obviously very mercenary in the, the realization of what was happening with, with Alameda. That said, you know, last year and through the bull market, you had the same thing from everyone, which is that uh, Alameda or all the market making firms realized that they can't do enough market neutral stuff anymore. Right. Sam originally made his money, you know, the whole story about this Japanese yen arbitrage loop, um, which is it's a, it's a great story. Um, but you can you cannot do that for size, right? You cannot you cannot do that on billions of dollars. There's just there just isn't enough size out there to be able to deploy that kinds of capital into market neutral strategies. And so when you get too big, you have to become structurally long. There is no way to be market neutral if you're that big. And that's what happened last year. Is you had three arrows, you had Alameda, you had Jump, you had all these market making firms mm. that originally were doing market neutral strategies have to become structurally long. And the best way to be structurally long is venture. That's why they all got into venture. And, um, and they, and again, at that time, it was like, okay, these, these market making firms, they can do no wrong. And people didn't really understand the difference between a market making firm and a trader and a VC. And people understand that now. And they can see in the trail of blood behind all these guys, why market making firms are very different from actual venture capitalists. All right, everyone, time for a quick word from Circle and USDC. As a crypto user, you know the power of stable coins, dollar digital currencies that transcend borders, banking hours, 
and Legacy Financial Rails. Well, Circle's USDC has quickly become one of the most trusted and widely used stable coins. It's simple. People use USDC because of its composability, its stability, and its reserve transparency. And USDC isn't just adopted by a few of us DeFi DGENs and DAOs and NFT marketplaces, crypto companies alike, they all leverage USDC to diversify their treasury, asset management, and ecosystem-wide composability. The adoption's clear. USDC's grown to more than $50 billion in circulation since launching in 2018. We all have and we all will continue to take shots on our favorite volatile crypto assets, obviously, but USDC is one of the easiest ways to store your funds in a stable asset that can be used to send value around the world almost instantly. It lowers the cost of cross-border payments. It integrates into the growing ecosystem of crypto apps. As a seamless, trusted dollar digital currency, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the financial system. If you want to learn more about USDC, I would recommend you check out the recently published Transparency Hub on Circle.com. It's a great update to Circle's content on USDC. It outlines everything from links to their weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, blog posts that are written by their exec team that highlight how and why USDC was built the way it is. Really recommend it. Just go to Circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, let's get back to the show. I have, I've been, one thing I've been thinking about, uh, about a lot this week is why have we heard the story of Sam's, uh, the arbitrage, the 2017 arbitrage play? Like when you hear something like that, like a founder share that story. So one founder share one story so much, there's a reason behind it, right? There's a reason mm -hmm. behind why someone pushes a narrative. It just clicked for me, Hasib. The reason that he pushed that narrative so much is because I had in my head that Alameda was a market making firm not a directional hedge fund, not a directional fund. And that was the biggest surprise to me. I knew they were ruthless. I knew they were huge. What I didn't know is when uh, Ian Allison from Coindesk got that got their balance sheet, I didn't know that their portfolio looked like a bunch of my buddies who are like retail traders, <laughs> looked like a, bunch, like a D-gen, D-gen Solana portfolio out here. I was like, yes. guys, are you serious? Yeah. Like, this is your portfolio? This is remarkable. This is reckless. Yeah. yeah. I see his insight is great. Yeah. I think yeah. that's no, exactly I, you're, right. Like, you're absolutely you have right. to be structurally uh, long if you want. If you want exposure here at scale, you have to be structurally long. And and the more degen you are, um, you know, the more that you think you can get out of those positions quickly. When the market starts to go against you, when we go into one of these bear cycles and it starts to unravel, that's just going to work against you, right? And that's exactly what you see. It's it's going to implode. Like with that much capital being, you know, trying to be liquid, trying to be structurally long in the most degen stuff, and then everybody runs for the exits. Like it's going to implode. Yeah. Why, um, why is no one else talking about the fact that all these other exchanges, it's not like all these other exchanges are like, oh yeah, they don't have the market making teams anymore. They still all have the market making teams. They're all still running market making teams. Like, is this something that's just going to like quietly keep happening? I don't know. I mean, it's again, for, for a lot of these exchanges, I mean, there's, they're, they're overseas. They're not regulated in the U S like nobody in the U S is doing that to be clear, because that is super, uh, uh not okay from U S regulators. Um, but these global exchanges, like, you know, the, if you're headquartered in the Bahamas or you're headquartered in, uh, uh, you know, Malta or in Dubai or whatever, um, as far as I know, there, there's, there's nothing illegal about it. And so, uh, now you, you cannot trade against your customer, you know, you can't, you can't there's all sorts of stuff that you're not allowed to do. Um, but in principle, you know, everybody knew in the early days of FTX that Alameda was trading there and that Alameda was in fact, I mean, this was, this was well known as, as part of the reason why 
in the early days, FTX got any traction at all. FTX in the beginning was not a retail exchange. No retail had even heard of FTX, right? The only people who knew FTX were people who knew Alameda. And who knew Alameda but other trading firms? So it was actually trading firms. It was market makers that were the original customers of FTX in the, in the very early days. And the reason why they were trading there was because the prices on FTX were tighter than anywhere else. Now, why was that happening? Why were the prices on FTX tighter than everywhere else? Is because people knew that Alameda was intentionally quoting tighter than they should in order to attract volume. And so market makers would come on FTX because the fees were super low. It was a really fast exchange. So it was easy to hedge and kind of, you know, basically kind of uh, almost like a way for just dealers to settle amongst each other. Um, and because Alameda was creating arbitrages for other people to pick up. Mm. And it was, it, was, it was known that that was happening because there's no reason why an exchange with no retail should be quoting tighter prices than anywhere else. The only reason that's happening is that somebody is intentionally quoting too tight. That was the story in the early mm. days of Alameda. And it was a successful strategy. It got all the market makers to come on Alameda, or sorry, to come on FTX to trade with Alameda. Now, some people were like, look, I don't, I don't trust it because it feels like a trap. It feels like maybe FTX is kind of laying these little, you know, are booby traps and they're front running us and they're doing all sorts of other shadiness. But a lot of people were there and they said, no, no, no it's fine. FTX is doing this, uh, Alameda is doing this as a loss leader to try to keep the prices tighter on uh, FTX. And to be clear, that's what a lot of market making shops within exchanges are supposed to be doing. Is yeah. they're supposed to be providing liquidity when when market participants are not willing to, in order to make it a better experience for customers, and um, that uh, in, in some ways it's a it's a valid strategy as a startup, um, but the the way in which Alameda profited off of everything that FTX and the Sam Empire were doing, that was what was exceptional. That was what was very different than what any other market making shop at Binance or whatever uh, do. So. Um, that, that I think is the distinction is, is, is as uh, Avichal put, it, are you doing this in service of your exchange or are you doing this to try to make money? Yeah. Uh, a lot of the market making operations at exchanges don't make money. Hmm. I want to take us into like today, basically, and like into, into this week. I think the biggest, uh, the like obvious risk that people are talking about right now is, um, uh, a, like uh, basically any like C5 platform, like other, like the, like, uh, big lenders or big, uh, big other centralized uh, exchanges, especially the offshore ones people are worried about. And people are saying, you know, move into something that feels more secure, like a Coinbase or, into, you know, move, move into like, put your, put your coin on a ledger or something like that. What are some of the things that you guys are thinking about inside of electric and dragonfly that you think maybe other folks aren't thinking about yet that they should be thinking about a virtual. Can I throw that question to you? Sure. Yeah. I think the big one on our mind right now is how does this all unravel? You know, we just don't know what the second order effects are yet. I think that's going to take a few weeks to a few months to really see. And so, you know, we're fielding calls from startups that had assets sitting on FTX. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, I think, you know, we just don't know beyond the block of the world or the genesis of the world, what happens here. Um, and I think that's going to take a while to, to play out. Um, and, and the reason I think that's really important is because that is going to tell us who the ultimate victims of this really are, like who's left holding the bag when you have this much leverage floating around and who, you know, who, who ultimately has to eat these losses. Um, and until we know that it's, you know, just, we just don't know what the value of some of these assets is going to be. Um, and I think that's just going to take some time to play out. The other thing we've been thinking about is the regulatory, because I think what this is going to do is this is going to arm people who are going to say, hey, look, crypto is terrible. It needs regulation, not realizing that it wasn't the FTX US folks that were doing this. 
it was the offshore folks. Um, you know, the impropriety was happening out, out, outside of the U.S. regulatory regime. And the reason that that has happened is that the lack of clarity in the U.S. has really pushed um, so many people offshore that you've created these dark markets. Um, and, and so, you know, it's actually the consequence of, of opaque and bad regulation and regulation by enforcement that has created this, this environment that has sort of pushed it in this direction. You know, if you look at kind of how FTX was operating, in many ways, they were at an advantage to Coinbase. Like Coinbase, which is following the rules in the United States and not doing these kinds of things, operates at a significant disadvantage, which which in a bull market shows up in your growth rates and it shows up in your volume. And of course, in a, in a bear market, you know, you implode um, or you can implode. But I, I worry that regulators might actually learn the wrong lessons here when the right lessons are actually DeFi and transparency and auditability. Like these are the kinds of things that we should be pushing towards. Uh, and, and so I, I worry about this sort of recoil that we may have away from crypto, even though actually many of the technologies in this space are actually the solution to exactly this problem. Hmm. Hasib, what do you, what do you, what do you think here on the, before getting into the regulatory side and the default, cause I fully agree with you guys. It's like, you know, you know, what worked really well through all this is like Uniswap and Aave and compound. And those have worked phenomenally yeah. through all this. I want to maybe close with that actually, but Hasib, what else, what else are, are you looking at, at on the, uh, the contagion side of things? Like maybe, are there any areas that you're like, oh my God, like people should really be focused on this and like they're all the eyes are over here, but like it should be over here. Yeah. I mean the, the, the main answer. So there are a lot of people who are scared right now about tether and about USDC. And I think, I, I mean, look, I don't know what I don't know, but uh, I think those are not the places that you should be worried. Um, those guys are very, very well capitalized. They have tons of money and they can absorb a loss, even if they lost some funds at FTX. Um, it's, uh, it's the, I mean, so a lot of trading firms, a lot of market-making firms almost certainly had capital on FTX. They're going to get hit. That's going to be a big blow to liquidity uh, because, you know, the, a huge amount. If you're a trading firm, you have to be liquid on different exchanges. That's that's how it works. Um, and so all the trading firms you should expect to have lost money. Uh, the, big, the, big, the big one is Genesis. And if Genesis blows... Everything is down. So, for those of you who don't know, Genesis is, big, is the biggest lender in crypto. They're they're a huge institutional uh, lender run by uh, owned by DCG, and uh, it was uh, apparently this morning DCG stepped in to backstop Genesis. But last night I was hearing a lot of rumors that Genesis was insolvent. Um, now I don't know if that is actually correct, and it, it looks like Genesis is one of those things that um, you know FTX. Uh, it was a real question of how much people would step up to save it. Uh, just to backstop the industry, Genesis to me feels like, especially especially after yesterday with the inflation print, uh, with the market feeling, you know, some legs again. That um, I think people, I think people would have stepped up to save Genesis because if Genesis goes, everything in CFI goes. Like that is the kind of central choke point that would have taken almost everything down because Genesis is almost everybody in the industry as a counterparty. Well, I wonder actually, I see if the the fact that DCG had to step up was actually an indication that others were not willing to step up. I, I, I think that the, so what, what I heard is that DCG stepped up for 130 million. Yeah. Um, that seems like an amount of money that if they couldn't produce it, they could have, they could have raised. Uh, I think just their counterparties alone would have chipped in enough money to save them. Hmm. Uh, so I, I actually think if that's the size of the hole, then DCG would have, or sorry, Genesis would have been okay. If it was bigger than that, then it would have been a lot worse. Um, you, you remember, you know, in, um, uh, when, when three arrows went down, 
you know, everybody announced, oh, we're fine. We have no exposure. And it was yeah. much later that we learned that the hole in Genesis was a billion dollars. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of people were really scared that, okay, they, they showed a strong face during Three Arrows and they seemed to have underplayed exactly how much damage they were dealt at that time. Um, it, everybody was worried that they hadn't learned their lesson and that the last, you know, the, the, why did everybody have so much exposure to Three Arrows during that saga? The answer was that when rates were going down, the only people willing to pay high rates was Three Arrows. And so if you wanted to be able to be competitive as a lender, you needed to give as much money as possible to the most creditworthy person who's willing to pay high rates, which was Three Arrows. Now that was Alameda. And so the fear was that yeah. that's where all the money was going. That's where everybody was lending to. Um, and that when you actually uncover the loan books, it's not that everybody learned their lesson, but rather that everybody went to the next most institutional borrower, which was Alameda. Now, it seems like that didn't actually happen. Right, so Genesis announced that uh, when they when they liquidated their counterparties, um, they had seven million dollars in losses in, in uh, liquidating their collateral. Um, that is really not bad, very very not bad, um, and it seems to indicate. And this is what we've heard from a bunch of lenders: is that actually their exposure to Alameda was very low, because of the fact that everybody did learn the lesson of what the hell is this FTT bullshit? Like this this thing is not this thing is not high quality collateral. All the risk managers got fired after three arrows. Yeah. And they brought in people with more experience and who weren't uh, married to the way in which risk management was done pre three arrows. And they were like, okay, we have to lower our exposure to this because no single person is going to be that uh, robust in, uh, you know, in, in a real downturn scenario. And so I think actually what happened, my suspicion is that the lenders actually did wise up and lower their exposure to Alameda, which is why Alameda had to go to FTX is because nobody else was willing to lend to them against their shitty collateral. The only person willing to do that became FTX. Hmm. And that's my, my suspicion is that and that's th why and this all is this where, started. This is where the acquisitions too of someone like a BlockFi and a Voyager come into the story too. Yeah. yeah. That's the speculation, right? The speculation is that the last piggy banks that Alameda had were Voyager and BlockFi. And if Voyager and BlockFi blew, then they were going to have to liquidate the FTT collateral that they held, which was uh, not, you know, it was just not liquid and there was no market for it. Um, and that was also going to expose the web of relationships that Alameda had, which was not going to look good for them. Yeah. And so if they bought them out, then they could continue the, the they could continue the thing going. That's a speculation. Again, yeah. we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. Um, but we, we, we got a message the, today. I, I have no idea if this is true or not. This is all speculative. A lot of rumors floating around, obviously. But yeah. we got a rumor today that uh, part of the um, part of the line of credit for the FTX BlockFi deal was contingent upon BlockFi moving off of. I think they use like Gemini, a combination of like Gemini and Bitco as custodians, like these great mm. custodians moving to FTX for custody. Oh, geez. Mm. So, oh, geez. Uh, wow. total, total rumors. I'm just saying like, this is 100% rumors. So, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, are you guys worried about any other, like these kind of maybe other offshore exchanges, like tier two, tier three exchanges, other, other lenders, like there's still some companies floating around where I'm like, oh man, like that. All right. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing that's scary about these situations is that um, the, you hear about the people who are fine first. Yeah. It's easy for them to raise their hands. I, I have no exposure. I only have a yeah. few million. Uh, I'm okay. You know, don't. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're all good. Don't pull your money. Um, it's the people who are actually in trouble who are quiet right now yeah. and who are scrambling behind the scenes to try to figure out what can they get out? What can they do? Is there some way they can fill the hole? Can they get a loan? Can they? So um, it, it, it's, it's scary because of the fact that uh, we're going to find out soon who was really yeah. hurt. And the same thing happened with three arrows. 
is that there was the obvious stuff right away, and then there's the less obvious stuff that shows up later. Um, that's what that's what worries me. I, I you know I've heard that KuCoin is is in trouble. Um, there are a few other exchanges that seem to have issues, but for the most part, I mean the the reality is most exchanges don't do this shit. Uh, most exchanges uh, they they understand how to run an exchange business, which is that you leave the funds where they yeah. are. Well, there's this, supposed to be on chain in a cold wallet. There's a third order effect here, right? Which is that, you know, if FTX is the first order, the second order is that people had assets on FTX or they were somehow tied up and had lent money to Alameda. And then the third order is as soon as you, you say that and you say, hey, look, you know, we, we had 200 million or 300 million or 400 million, there's some, some large amount of money sitting over there. Then you have a bank run on your own exchange or you have a, a bank run on your own lending product. So the third order effect is you now, even though you could have absorbed the loss, as soon as you admit that there was some exposure, there's a there's another bank run that happens, which then cascades, and that's how these dominoes fall, right? It's like every in in, in these moments of illiquidity, and and sort of like you're hitting up close to those marginal places where okay, we're, we'll be okay as long as everybody keeps their money here, we'll earn it back. That if everybody pulls their money, then then you have another second order effect and a third order effect, and then and then these dominoes sort of start to start to fall, and that's what worries me is we just don't right. know who's who's holding you know, 20, 30, 40% loss on their books right now. And if that gets out, is there another bank run? And does that bank run sort of, you know, domino into, into something else? And, and that I think is just going to take a couple months to play out. Yeah. Um, talking about DeFi guys, uh, and Avichal, I know you have a, a hard stop coming up soon, so we can we can think about wrapping this kind of soon, but there's a couple of things I want to get answers to. One is um, sure. like tier one DeFi is obviously fine, right? Like it seems like, you know, the, again, like I've mentioned this, the Uniswaps, Aves, Compounds, Makers of the World, operating great. This is, they're like a shining light through all of this again. What's the impact on maybe some of the smaller protocols? Maybe some of the five to 10 person startups, they raised a series A, maybe they raised a seed round. Had any of them like, I, I guess there's like a hodgepodge of questions here. Like had any of them given tokens to Alameda and FTX to like hold for them or to like market make for them? Or uh, what's the like structural impact on maybe some of the smaller like DeFi protocols as well? Um, I, I, I don't know. It's like an open-ended question here, but Hasib, I'll throw that to you. It's it's too early to say right now. We don't, again, we don't know how this is going to play out. Alameda just filed for bankruptcy. And um, we've been hearing that they were paying people back and doing all these, um, uh, uh, paying back loans and doing all sorts of stuff, which uh, some of it might end up getting reversed in a bankruptcy. Um, mm. So very often, if you, if you know that you're going into bankruptcy, um, you're not allowed to be settling debts or to be paying people back uh, unless it's basically the ordinary course of business or you know that you're doing it for fair market value. Um, just because of the fact that in a bankruptcy, there is a very strict ordering to how people can get paid out with your assets. And if you're violating that ordering, then uh, a bankruptcy judge can unwind those transactions. So right now, we don't really know. Um, everything at Alameda is supposed to be frozen and nothing's allowed to be touched except you know just keeping the lights on until a bankruptcy judge uh, decides how this is going to get unwound. Uh, the same thing is going to be true for FTX US and for FTX Global. So um, I, my guess, and again, right now it's just a guess, there are obviously a number of teams that had funds on FTX. Um, if you're a startup and you had all your money on FTX, you probably were doing something very wrong. Um, but we know of some startups that had some money on FTX. And uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's unfortunate. Um, but at least so far in our portfolio, we haven't seen anybody with catastrophic losses. Um, some people had, you know, kind of trading funds on FTX, and that and that uh, got wiped out. But for the most part, um, the the it's it's like Vito said, the second and third order effects that are going to be hitting people the most. If Alameda owned a lot of your tokens, they're probably frozen there for a while, and they will very slowly, in a very long time from now, get liquidated uh, in some kind of auction. 
that's that's the most likely outcome yeah. for a lot of the things that that Alameda holds on the balance sheet. Um, and same for FTX Ventures. Uh, we've we heard that people were trying to buy uh, FTX Ventures. SAFs actually, Layer Zero announced I think yesterday that yeah. they bought out uh, FTX Ventures from all their ownership in uh, in Layer Zero. Um, I, I suspect that that may get unwound if they did that not at uh, fair market value. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of stuff like this that like it, when when you go through bankruptcy, bankruptcy is a very complex, very legalistic process, and it takes a very long time. And so I think unless you know that you lost money in FTX, you don't know what's going to happen with your uh, counterparty exposure to FTX or Alameda for quite a while from now. Uh, Crypto.com just laid off 50% of the company. Wow. Hmm. Holy crap. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, and this is the tricky thing, too. Two, two thoughts on this. One, um, you know, people have to posture that they're okay to prevent these bank run scenarios, right? And so I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but there have been people posturing that they're okay that that are definitely not okay. And that's what makes this so hard. And that's why it takes a while for this to really play out is because the reality will will surface. But until that point, because you need to prevent a bank run type, type of scenario in a low liquidity environment, people are going to posture that they're okay. And so it just makes it very, very challenging um, to know what's actually going on until it actually happens. And then two, I, I do agree with Asib. I think people likely are very underestimating how long this is going to take to play out. You know, like people haven't gotten their Mt. Gox claims paid out yet. It's like eight years later. Um, you know, Bernie, I was looking at the Bernie Madoff situation. I think it's been about eight or nine. No, it's been close to 10 years now. And they've gotten about 80% of the money back. Um, but, you know, for the first couple of years, you got nothing. Uh, and, and so even 10 years later, they've only managed to, to recover about 80% of the assets. And this is a global thing with a bunch of interconnected entities. I, I, no, I still get a check. Just, I get I get a really? check in the mail every. I get a, I get a check every every month from yeah. My family got was impacted by Bernie Madoff, and we oh I get God. a check still every single month from the Bernie Madoff like unwinding fund or whatever it's I don't know what it's called, like yeah. Yeah, it's gonna it, it very well could but take 10, 10, 10 years, years ten years later out. or thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, guys, I, I know, I know we got to wrap this up here. Um, you guys came on the podcast nine months ago and we were a really exciting podcast. We we're talking about like multi-chain future and, uh, we talked about cosmos a little bit. We we're talking about Solana. How does this impact your guys? I mean, we're one year into bear market. It's going to be a deep bear market, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Chow, who I really respect and like Chow came out yesterday and he's like, I think this bear market's going to be uh, worse than 2014 and worse than 2018. I would just love to get maybe closing thoughts on on what you guys are looking at in the uh, over the next like maybe year or so, and like how you guys are thinking about this market right now. I think um, our take on this is yeah, our take on this is that this is I mean, we were not personally around for 2001. We've talked to a bunch of our investors and have talked to you know older friends um, who were through that. I think this is going to be like 2001. For crypto, and and what I mean by that is that um, the size of the hole here is going to be large, and it's going to take time to dig out from that hole. Um, financially speaking, um, the number of people impacted is is now significant. Whereas 2014, there are just not that many people in crypto. So if crypto died, you know how many people did it really impact uh, versus today, where you're talking about exchanges that have potentially tens of millions of users. These are real real numbers and billions of dollars. But 
if you get through that and the people who are focused on building and creating real value persist, two, three, four years later, uh, you, you might actually continue and you might actually create real value. And ultimately, the real value is what's going to matter. Like if we build stuff that people all over the world can actually use, if you can, if you, you know, merchants can pay people faster, if you can pay your employees better, if people who don't have access to financial services can get those things, if uh, creators have a new business model and they can actually monetize their fans and, and not have to pay exorbitant fees to middlemen, um, you know, all these things that we've talked about for, for many years, we now have all of the pieces in place to actually execute on, you know, like all the stuff that was theoretical in 2017, you know, L2s and stable coins and DeFi and ETH going to proof of stake and Cosmos is going to be up and running and IBC is going to work one day. And like you run through the list and you're like, holy crap, all of those things are real. Like all of that stuff actually exists now. And, and so it's really up to the builders, uh, you know, whether or not they're going to take all these pieces and plug them together and create real value. And if that happens, I think we come out of this, you know, as a as actually a thing that goes up the S curve. We go mainstream. A billion users will use this stuff. It'll change the world. And if we can't, if we can't persist for the next three years and, and sort of grind it out, um, then we may not. And, and that was the sentiment in 2001. It just was not clear whether tech was ever coming back or the internet was a fad and it was not coming back or or if it was. And, and you know, clearly worked out one way. And I think it can, you know, my, my bias is that based on the people that we talk to, at least, there are enough committed people here now, you know, tens of thousands of people writing code that I think we will persist, but it, it will not be easy. Yeah. This thing, um, this thing is a lot worse than Terra or, or Three Arrows. This thing really kind of hit at the heart of what crypto is about. And it, it hurts all the more because of how beloved Sam was. How many people threw their um, hopes and dreams behind him. And uh, he, he betrayed that trust. It, it, it makes me it, it it makes me think a lot about like why we're actually here uh, we're we're not here to build centralized exchanges right centralized exchanges are in many ways the compromise that we need in order to bridge from the old world to this new world that we're building when satoshi nakamoto created bitcoin he said that the the purpose of bitcoin was to allow people to transact without the need for trusted intermediaries and the reality is we're not there yet. We're not at the place yet where we can fully transact without trusted intermediaries. And that's why exchanges exist. Exchanges exist because DeFi is not ready yet. Because all of the pieces that we need in order to have that connective tissue, such that normal people, the normal people who are trading on FTX, who are using all these products, who trusted Sam, um, so, so they could not interact directly with what the blockchain gives you which is guarantees of correctness, right? The, the freedom to not have to trust any single person, to not have to trust a single company. Um, the, the goal in crypto is to, is to have it so that this kind of thing doesn't have to happen. Not that it doesn't happen, that it doesn't have to happen because of the fact that the code itself guarantees that people do the right thing. And that's what I wanna be a part of in, uh, in crypto and, and, and that's why I, I intend to continue investing in the space and also believing in the space because that's that's the reason that that um, everybody who's excited about crypto is fundamentally here. So to me, it kind of it renews the call 
of yeah. coming back to the core values of what crypto is about. Crypto is not about recreating Wall Street. And that's ultimately the, the folly that led to the downfall of FTRs. Haseeb, can't think of a better way to end it than that. Um, Avichal, thank you. Haseeb, thank you guys. I uh, hope you guys have a, can get some sleep and can spend some Likewise. time with the fam and, and, and get away from the Twitter doom scrolling this weekend. So uh, I will see you guys on the other side of this. Sounds good. Stay safe, everybody.